Velkommen til Computational Thinking – At tænke med maskiner. En podcast fra IT Vest om informatik og brugen af komputationelle metoder i forskning, uddannelse og undervisning. I denne særepisode skruer vi tiden tilbage til 6. og 7. september 2022, hvor der var konference om AI og humaniora på Aarhus Universitet. Robotter, sociale medier og automatisk oversættelse er bare nogle af de områder, hvor humaniora bliver nødt til at takle den teknologiske udvikling og de etiske udfordringer, og hvor det nærmest er umuligt ikke at samarbejde på tværs af discipliner og institutionelle grænser. På den to-dages konference AI and the Humanities kunne man i september 2022 opleve en række oplæg og paneler, som tog temperaturen på den hastige forandring med udgangspunkt i vidt forskellige aspekter af krydsfeltet mellem AI og humaniora. Konferencen var en slags afsluttende event for Human Futures-netværket, som har kørt i seks år, men stopper nu, og især samlede man altså op på de sidste tre års fokus på AI og machine learning i humaniora. Konferencen blev organiseret i samarbejde med det interdisciplinære forskningscenter SHAPE, Shaping Digital Citizenship, også ved Aarhus Universitet. I denne og næste episode af Computational Thinking at tænke med maskiner, taler vi med en række af oplægsholderne på konferencen. Photography has always been subject to manipulation. You know, since the beginning people were aware of that for sure. So, um, so I don't think AI photography will necessarily change that, but it definitely adds a new layer to this kind of what is real, what is not real, um, what is photographic. What caught my eye this time was the use of AI in the pre-production process, right? And using AI to help make decisions about which films get made. Konferencen i Aarhus trak trådet tilbage til vores episode 18 fra juli 2022, hvor vi også besøgte et arrangement om AI og kultur. Dengang var fokus på tekstskabelse og skrivealgoritmer, men vi nævnte også kort dal i to. Et AI-værktøj, som med udgangspunkt i et tekstinput, kan skabe fantastiske og fantasifulde billeder i mange forskellige stilarter. Siden forsommeren er det nærmest eksploderet med tilsvarende tjenester og programmer, og de sociale medier flyder over med eksempler på sager, smukke og nogle gange skræmmende billeder, skabt af AI-værktøjer ud fra de mere eller mindre kreative input fra dem, der afprøver dem. Men det stopper naturligvis ikke der. AI og avancerede algoritmer er jo blevet en integreret del af vores verden og hverdag, og det betyder, at humaniora både må se på AI som forskningsfelt og være parat til at udforske om og hvordan algoritmerne kan anvendes som værktøj i hverdagen. En af humaniorens roller er at være kritisk i forhold til brugen af nye teknologier, men samtidig også konstruktiv, som professor Mads Rosendal Thomsen sagde i sin velkomst på konferencen. Og det er også i det spektrum, at de medvirkende i disse to episoder bevæger sig. Vi har plukket altså en række deltagere og oplæg, som spændte fra filmproduktion i Hollywood over kunstigt genererede portrætter til selve spørgsmålet om, hvad kreativitet egentlig er for noget. I denne episode lægger vi ud med to eksempler på forskning, der ser på anvendelsen af AI til at lave kulturelle produkter i mangel af bedre ord. Først skal vi tale med Amanda Vasilevski, der har undersøgt AI-skabte falske portrætbilleder, altså fotorealistiske billeder af mennesker, der ikke eksisterer som personer ude i virkeligheden. 
Bagefter ser vi på, hvordan Hollywood og den europæiske filmindustri er begyndt at bruge algoritmer til at forsøge at forudsige, hvordan potentielle spillefilm vil klare sig i biograferne, allerede inden man er gået i gang med at producere dem. Det er Paisé Chow, der fortæller. Begge interviews er i øvrigt på engelsk, så er man advaret. I næste episode skifter vi så spor til en ny vinkel på kunstig intelligens og fænomenets betydning for humanioren. Mere om det næste gang. Og lad os så komme i gang for alvor. Som nævnt har vi i år set en decideret bølge af AI-værktøjer, der kan skabe ganske imponerende og fantastiske billeder. Det er så noget som Dal i 2, Midjourney og Stable Diffusion. Billederne tager udgangspunkt i en eller anden form for tekstinput i stil med en astronaut med korbøjhat, surrealisme, eller to heste på en blå mark, olie på canvas, eller hvad fantasi nu kan klare at komme op med. Men allerede i 2019 kunne man opleve AI-skabte billeder, der gav anledning til en del røre. I projektet This Person Does Not Exist, altså denne person eksisterer ikke, som basalt set består af en nærmest endeløs række af portrætter, hvor tvistet så er, at det er computerskabte fotos i gåseøjne af personer, som altså ikke eksisterer. Det er faktisk en ganske enkel idé, men den virker alligevel overvældende, fordi billederne er så ekstremt realistiske, at man i mange tilfælde faktisk ikke kan se, at de er kunstigt skabte. Som man kunne høre, så er det måske også lidt svært at beskrive billederne og deres forhold til den fysiske virkelighed. For er det portrætter? Falske fotografier? Fotografier af falske personer? Og hvad er fotografi egentlig? Og hvilken rolle spiller det i den her sammenhæng, at de bagvedliggende algoritmer jo er blevet trænet på tusindvis af rigtige portrætter af ægte mennesker? Det er præcis nogle af de spørgsmål, som Amanda Vasilevski fra Stockholm Universitet har set nærmere på. My name is Amanda Vasilevski, and I'm in the art history department at Stockholm University. Um, I'm part of a research group called the Metadata Culture Group. And so as a kind of sideline to that, um, I started becoming interested in AI and how AI is being used not only in cultural heritage context, but also in art history and uh, visual culture more generally. My current research into AI kind of grew out of this metadata culture project. Your talk today um, concerned mainly what some might call fake portraits or fake photos. Could you describe those? What what are those uh, images? Yeah, so these images um, are created using an AI tool uh, or architecture called StyleGAN, and uh, GAN stands for Generative Adversarial Network. Um, so it's a particular model where um, basically, you know, there's there's a kind of one side of the AI that presents um, possible images based on training data and then the other side kind of checks them and see and kind of judges whether they fit with the training data um, to put it very simply and then um, this kind of uh, helps we make the the output more and more convincing and there is a lot of media attention about these images of course because they are quite convincingly photographic um, they look Uh, very much like photographic portraits, so like headshots, often with a kind of shallow depth of field effect. So, um, you know, the backgrounds are blurred and, you know, people of all kind of ethnicities, races, young, old. And the the website um, was created as a way to kind of demonstrate how powerful this technology is to the general public. 
and became viral because of that. Um, and of course, there's lots of startups now that will produce tailor-made images such as these, you know, that people can use for more kind of benign uses, like, um, you know, if you need to fill in some kind of stock photos on a website. And then, you know, kind of more nefarious reasons, such as um, as uh, social media account profile pictures, where people promote particular political ideologies, bots, or even sock accounts where people uh, yeah, present political views to try to influence the general public on social media. So there's been a lot of attention um, of them as fake people because of those uses. You know, whether they're fake or not, you know, kind of depends on the context a little bit, um, or whether they're perceived as fake, I should say. Um, so... Så ja, det er i en nutshell, hvad those images are. Noget af det spændende ved de her falske billeder, det er som sagt, at de på nogle måder er helt forskellige fra fotografier, men på andre måder stadig godt kan klassificeres som fotos. A lot of the kind of current discourse around these images has been about how um, you know, they deceive people or they fool people, how they're fake. Um, also this plays into the whole kind of conversation around deep fakes. Um, so instead, I wanted to kind of look at these images from the point of view of the theory of photography and the kind of um, history of you know photography in terms of you know how do we conceptualize a photograph, um, how do we define it? Because uh, it has been something that's quite tricky even before now. Right from the start of the you know the medium of photography has not been one thing. You know there were multiple different kinds of you know, different processes to create photographs, uh, competing processes throughout its whole history from, you know, the 19th century till today. So, um, you know, one of the questions for the theory of photography has been how do we define photography? And the the kind of 1980s theorists, uh, in a way, tried to dismiss those questions in favor of talking about the cultural use, circulation, uh, understanding and meaning of photography rather than uh, trying to kind of pinpoint what are the uh, you know, visual or formal elements that define photography. So in, in that kind of context, I wanted to think about these portraits as photographs, um, because for many people, you know, they're sort of indistinguishable from a traditionally produced photograph. So that was the kind of uh, departure point was trying to think about these not in this context of um are they fake or real well they're you know from a certain point of view they're clearly fake but to think about them as having a kind of reality of their own uh a kind of existence of their own in the world that is photographic undeniably so that it, it plays into that history of photography and they are photographic in the sense that they appear to be photographs so that's one sense in mm-hmm. which they are, are are similar to photographs but they are also being created by algorithms trained on a huge amounts of existing photographs of quote-unquote real people mm-hmm. so in that sense they are also a type of photograph yeah, so in a way there's this kind of uh they're they're composites in a way because they're a, a kind of composite of this huge database of photographs and so they couldn't exist without these traditionally produced photographs. Uh, so on one hand, they have this very real connection to photography. On the other hand, being a composite, they're a kind of um, visual invention that 
you know, you can't go find that person in the world and, you know, shake their hand. Uh, so those people don't exist. Um, but that doesn't make the image any less photographic. And in order to kind of define it as a photograph, you have to separate this idea of photography from it's, it's touching the real, that a photograph has to be defined by having an, a figure that's represented that you can go then in the world and, and touch. And so there's, or, or that has a connection to something in the past that you could have touched or, or been in contact with in a kind of physical way. So yeah, so there's this kind of a tricky conceptual uh, issue at stake here because, you know, on one hand, they are connected to photography. They couldn't exist in the form they do without being connected to photography in a traditional sense. Um, but in another way, they're created. There's no um, lens. There's no subject. There's no camera. There's no sensor. There's no, none of the trappings that we would traditionally associate with photography go into the actual creation of the image. Of course, you could argue that those things were all present in the data. So, um, you know, there is that. But in the actual creation of the image, that process doesn't include those things. And therefore, yeah, the, the subject of that, um, of that image is, is not something you could refer to in the world. Nej, det er altså ikke helt nemt at takle spørgsmålet om de her falske portrætter og deres forhold til fotografi og den fysiske verden, siger Amanda Vazielewski. Det bliver dog heller ikke mindre kompliceret af, at påvirkningen går begge veje. For det første kan vi analysere de her AI-skabte billeder ud fra vores eksisterende teorier om fotografi. For det andet bliver disse teorier også påvirket og måske endda udfordret af de her nye typer af billeder, som måske ikke rigtig er fotografier. You know, it makes you sort of rethink all of these models um, in the theory of photography, where the process is the most important part. So like the technique of making the photograph. I mean, it's in the name photograph, light, writing. So there's a kind of reference to an abstract process in the name photography. But because, as I mentioned, um, you know, there are all these different techniques, you know, how could we say that, for instance, a daguerreotype, which was one, you know, the, one of the earliest forms of photography, was a single, uh, not reproducible plate Um, and so the photographic image was imprinted on a unique plate, a very fragile object. And then that compare that to a digital photograph taken with a digital camera, like a digital SLR camera. You know, if you look at those two processes, you, you know, it's hard to say that those are the same technique in any way, shape or form. It's a very, it's a very tenuous uh, way to define photography. So instead... Um, I wanted to kind of think about photography as something formally that's communicated, something visually that, you know, when you as a viewer see it, because of our cultural conditioning, because of, you know, the way we understand the history of photography, we know what a photograph is, we read that image in a certain way as a photograph. And it doesn't matter how it was produced because it has that photographic quality. So, and that's part of what goes into the idea of them being deceptive, Right, because it's um, you know it looks photographic, and what does it mean to look photographic? You know, is is a the larger question I think that's at stake. Are there any new aspects of these photos, or use cases, or perhaps types of technologies in this in the same field that you're looking at to 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 research in the future? 
I mean, I think one of I mean, one of the more interesting kind of things that's exploded recently is the text to image creation. And you can say, you know, a lot of the tools for text to image creation, you can say, give me photographic quality or give me sepia tone or give me um, this particular camera, a Leica camera. And maybe, you know, I think at the moment they're not as convincing as the um, style GAN, the original um, GAN created images, but I think that they're getting there. And so then, you know, it just it just increases the accessibility of creating these quote unquote fake people and quote unquote fake photographs. And so, yeah, then the question is, you know, um, photography has always, you know, been uh, subject to manipulation and um you know, since the beginning, people were aware of that, for sure. Um, but we still want to trust and believe in a photographic image to believe, you know, that we're seeing something that touches reality or touches the real or nature. So um, so I don't think AI photography will necessarily change that, but it definitely adds a new layer to this kind of what is real, what is not real, um, what is photographic. Fra Amanda Vazielewski og hendes falske fotografier bevæger vi os over et helt andet aspekt af de visuelle kunstarter. Det skal nemlig handle om Hollywood, filmindustrien og ikke mindst forretningen bag. I sit oplæg på konferencen i Aarhus den 6. og 7. september spurgte Pajsæs Chow retorisk om AI skal bestemme, hvilke film der skal produceres. Og selvom svaret i hvert fald indtil videre nok er... Nej, eller i hvert fald, ja, så bliver der arbejdet hårdt på at lave algoritmer og software, der om ikke andet så kan fungere som beslutningsstøtte for producenter og filmmagere, både i USA og i Europa. AI has been quite present in many stages of the filmmaking process already. You know, this AI-powered software that helps with editing. Um, you have AI being used in the sort of distribution side of things so if you think about Netflix and how it recommends films for the user you know there's a lot of algorithms behind that but what caught my eye this time was the use of AI in the pre-production process right and using AI to help make decisions about which films get made so I started you know looking more into this I wrote a paper in 2020 uh, about the emergent uh, technologies my name is Pace Chow and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam in the Media Studies Department. And I uh, have just started a new research group at Amsterdam, and it's called the Artificial Intelligence and Cultural Production Research Group. And in this group, you know, we're a bunch of diverse people looking at uh, basically the use of AI tools that are now used in creative production. So, you know, in visual art and film, music, uh, and so on and so forth. And as a film scholar, for me, the moment came sometime in 2018 when I attended a conference in Copenhagen. Uh, it was called the Picture This Conference. It's a sort of film industry conference. And there was a talk by this company called Scriptbook. It's a Belgian company. Uh, and their product, so to speak, is uh, an AI-powered platform that can analyze a screenplay and tell you whether or not this screenplay should be produced into a film. And so this, you know, struck me as something really interesting, potentially problematic. 
But, you know, as a film scholar, I was really interested in how the film industry works and, you know, what sorts of new technologies are coming up. And so this really caught my eye. And um, this came at a time when, you know, AI is very much in the public consciousness. You know, we, we've, we've heard so much about AI in healthcare, in governance, in uh, the military, in, you know, automated cars, that sort of thing. So now this was for me one of the first times I was think, hearing about AI in the creative industry, AI in filmmaking. And, you know, since then, this has become a legitimate sort of uh, business activity within, you know, the film industry, especially in Hollywood and now increasingly in Europe. So I'm looking more into this. I'm, uh, I've already conducted a couple of interviews with some of the, you know, chief technology officers of these companies. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to track this phenomenon to see where it goes. You asked in the title uh, a question that you uh, that you pretty definitively answered yourself <laughs> at the end. So, should AI be used to to choose which movies to make? Is that is that what is being tried out there, or is that simply what's being sold as a story? I mean, that's a, a very sensationalist question, right? And headline. It makes for a great headline. Uh, and it's it was a narrative that was pushed by a lot of uh, media outlets, um, and it sort of preys on this very common misconception or even fear that computers are now going to take over everything about human life and human uh, creative art making. Um, so I asked that question quite provocatively, um, but it is, as I said, you know, not the case that filmmakers or producers are actually just relying on these tools to make decisions. I think these tools need to be seen as glorified calculators. <laughs> as you said, you know, these sorts of technologies have always existed and the processes that these technologies are trying to automate have already existed before, right? If you think about big Hollywood studios, they've always had, you know, teams of people crunching numbers, coming up with predictions about box office performance or, you know, running all sorts of tests to figure out whether a screenplay is good enough to be made or whether it's profitable. Um, what these AI tools really do is to speed up all of that. This research process that traditionally would have taken weeks or months can now be done in a matter of hours, right? So what, what these AI companies are really pushing or selling in this case is, you know, the ability to condense that process in a more, uh, in a quicker way. Uh, it's, it'll be cheaper than hiring a team of people to do it, and it will be more accurate. So this claim that their tool is, you know, very accurate at predicting which screenplays will be a box office hit. I mean, that to me is really, really interesting because it brings up all kinds of discussions about, you know, what kind of data are they relying on to make these predictions, right? What kind of historical trends actually affect um, the way these algorithms work and what sorts of bias, what sorts of problems there may be in this kind of data set. Det er måske værd lige her at præcisere, hvilke værktøjer vi egentlig taler om, og hvad de kan eller påstår at kunne for at hjælpe producenter og andre filmfolk. 
Og det er måske på sin plads at slå fast, at de ikke skriver manuskripter eller bruges til at lave filmeffekter eller andre kreative ting, men udelukkende endnu i hvert fald fungerer som en slags business analytics løsning, som kan hjælpe med at vurdere, om en idé eller et manus eller måske endda en færdig film kan blive en succes, i hvert fald økonomisk. Det er løsninger som for eksempel Synalytic og Largo AI og tidligere også eksempler som Scriptbook. Nogle af dem er basalt set regneark på steroider, andre bruger mere eller mindre avancerede forudsigelsesalgoritmer og kan i nogle tilfælde for eksempel også foreslå skuespillere til bestemte roller, fortæller Paisé. These tools are positioned as sort of business analytics um, tools. They are Uh, tools that are used by producers, by studio executives, um, and sometimes by screenwriters and directors as well. But primarily, they're there to help you calculate the probability of whether your story will sell or not. So, um, how these uh, tools work is that the user feeds it uh, a screenplay. You upload a screenplay, or you upload some footage that you've already shot or even you can upload the entire film that you've just shot and it will basically break down the film or the screenplay into constituent parts so it will uh, sort of visualize um, the data of you know what kinds of genres are present in a screenplay It can do character analysis. It can tell you how much screen time each character has. It can tell you whether there are more male speaking characters or more female speaking characters and the percentages of how much they um, are present in the film. It can tell you things like which emotions are dominant in each scene. It can tell you, give you statistics about the intensity of action, the intensity of you know specific kinds of emotion so that uses a lot of um, you know text uh, or rather algorithms that rely on text um, on the other hand these tools also give you um, suggestions and recommendations as to who or, you know which actor or actress might be a suitable match for a particular character and it will spit out suggestions and assign percentages of how how uh, best each actor you know fits this role it can give you predictions about how much the film will earn at the box office in a given territory so you could select you know i want to see how much this film will earn at the US box office domestic right how much it will earn at the sort of international market in asia in the middle east in in india So there are lots of different data points that um, this these tools can sort of generate, um, and a lot of it uh, comes from basically analyzing simply a script or screenplay. Setting aside the fact that these companies are probably uh, hyping <laughs> uh, their products and, mm-hmm. and trying to sell it and, and perhaps claim it can do more than it, it actually can. Mm-hmm. What do you see as some of the um, major challenges or, or perhaps even problems with this approach or these types of tools? The fact is that they are already being used by large studios like Warner Brothers, like Sony Pictures, and also by smaller independent film companies you know, from the US as well as Europe. So they exist and they are being used. 
what some of the potential problems may be or you know challenges that we'll need to address or uh, really take a closer look at is the question of uh, bias in the data sets. The algorithms, these machine learning algorithms are trained on screenplays, you know, tens of thousands of screenplays from Europe, from the US, from Hollywood uh, studios that have offered their screenplays to these companies. They are trained on audiovisual material from past films. Um, and uh, there are specific labels for, you know, what is successful, what is not, what is a creative, what is an art film, what is a commercial film. Um, and the thing is, is that at least in film studies, it's acknowledged that in ho- in the Hollywood context, you know, Hollywood is not a very diverse place, right? The films that we watch, the the blockbusters that we watch coming out of Hollywood, they are there are problems with representation, there are problems with diversity, and these are problems that are being addressed by the film community today, right? We've got different movements um, and. Uh, campaigns that push for greater diversity of on-screen representation as well as off-screen, so in terms of the crew and so on. So given that kind of current moment, the danger is that these algorithms, these tools, if we rely on them too much to make decisions about which films to make, then you know, this reliance might actually dismantle all of the current efforts to diversify filmmaking. Um, And this is because there is the fear and the real danger that the algorithms will simply sort of replicate what has traditionally been labeled as a successful box office film, right? And that might be a film that supports a very white, a very um, conventional, a very heteronormative worldview, a very patriarchal one even. And so if that gets uh, replicated as, you know, what a good film or what a profitable film is, then we're only going to tell more of the same stories. Now, the thing is, these companies are fully aware of this danger, right? They are fully aware that people have this fear that um, using these tools will kill creativity, it will um, just spit out, you know, more of the same kinds of films. And so they are quite careful to uh, refute those claims by showing case studies, um, examples of how their algorithm has actually, you know, uh, selected for a, a more different film, a, a slightly sort of non-conventional film. Um, but these are obviously the cases that they put out in public what for us as the researcher, what we need to do really is to follow these uh, case studies, to follow projects over the longer term, to follow how people at, in the studios actually use these tools over an extended period of time and to actually see what the algorithms do recommend or what they actually do, um, how they actually impact the creative or you know the decision-making process and to see what kind of decisions are actually being made. Um, at the end of the day, and whether or not this changes how people make decisions about what film is worth making or not. 
Som Pajsé siger, så er det jo på nogle måder bare beslutningsstøtte, som vi efterhånden er stødt på mange steder i forretningslivet. Men det føles anderledes, fordi det handler om kultur og film, og fordi algoritmerne også begynder at bevæge sig ind på områder som sentimentanalyse af manuskripter og hvilke skuespillere, der måske egner sig bedst til hvilke roller. Og så er der altså også afgjort den risiko i anvendelsen, at algoritmerne jo bygger på, hvilke film, der har klaret sig godt historisk. Og så kan man altså hurtigt ende i en situation, hvor vi bare får mere og mere af det samme med den samme slags plot, de samme skuespillere og den samme målgruppe. Skulle man dog tage nogle lidt mere optimistiske briller på, så kunne man jo også tweake algoritmerne, så de fik mere fokus på diversitet og inklusion og eksperimenter, selv når producenterne og filmmagerne ikke har det. Under alle omstændigheder så er det værd at understrege, siger Pajsé, at det altså ikke endnu er AI-værktøjerne, der bestemmer, hvilke film der skal laves. One very careful disclaimer that all of them have made is that you know our software or our algorithm does not replace the the final decision maker, the human decision maker. They are very careful to to um, explain that their tool exists as a sort of magnifying glass. Right? It simply shows the user the constituent parts of a screenplay, for example. Right? It doesn't actually make a final judgment to say that you know this film should be greenlit or not. It's holding up a mirror of sorts, a magnifying glass, showing you what your screenplay looks like in a kind of visualized form, right? Using all the data. And then yes, that's the at the at that moment, that's when the user, whether it's a director or screenwriter, can then reflect and say, ah, okay, <laughs> my screenplay maybe needs to be tweaked because it's not um not doing justice to the representation of ethnic minorities, for example. Um and therefore to make tweaks, therefore to make to take that creative decision to change the stories or to adapt something to make it, you know, a better film. So in their defense, these tools can be used in very positive ways. And I think there have been some uh, use cases where indeed, you know, it's been very helpful for some screenwriters to actually see uh, how their project could be enhanced. And that, you know, is being used as a selling point that, you know, their tools can enhance creativity. That's literally what uh, many of these companies say that you can enhance your gut feeling, you can enhance your creativity using AI. Um, so yes, there are there are positive ways to think about this this phenomenon indeed. Det er stadig relativt nyt at anvende algoritmer og AI-værktøjer til at udvælge, hvilke film, der skal produceres, og derfor er der meget, vi ikke ved endnu. Som afslutning opridser Pajsé nogle af de ting, hun selv gerne vil undersøge nærmere i de kommende år. For future research, I think what needs to happen is, uh, at least you know, speaking from a film studies perspective, a humanities perspective, because we can't deal with the technicalities of the algorithm, right? I'm not trained to do any coding. I, I don't understand what linear regression is. <laughs> So what I can do, however, is to study the discourse around this phenomenon, to study how people are actually using it and how it is impacting people. So what I hope to do in the near future with some grant funding is <laughs> is to perhaps conduct a, a, a an ethnography of um, how 
the developers or the AI engineers at these companies, you know, how they are actually constructing this algorithm um, to learn more about their work, about their approach to what filmmaking is or what film as a creative art is. Um, the interesting thing is that none of the people who work at these companies or who founded these companies, none of them originally came from the film business. One is a rocket scientist, literally, you know, a NASA rocket scientist. Um, there are people from the business world, people from finance, and obviously, of course, computer science. So it would be interesting to study how what they think of as creativity and how they talk about it, how they put it into practice through their development of their product. Um, it would be also important and certainly interesting to, to do a close ethnography as well of how people in the film industry are using these tools. Right, So the very decision makers that I've just been talking about, the producers, the screenwriters, I would really like to follow how they interact with the algorithm whether or not it does enhance their creativity or you know how does it impact their workflow and finally i think we need a sort of long-term view of this phenomenon as i said this is fairly new you know things started happening around 2018 so there's still a long way to go to to sort of observe and measure the real impact of these algorithms in film culture on film culture in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, can we say that these algorithms or the use of these algorithms have uh, positively benefited the diversity of film output? Or can we say that, you know, no, it has actually crushed <laughs> all efforts at diversity and we're simply seeing more of the same kinds of commercial, you know, blockbuster, formulaic films? So that's a sort of long-term thing that we would need to do as researchers. Det sagde jeg altså her, Pajze Chao fra Amsterdam Universitet, og før det hørte vi Amanda Vasilevski fra Universitetet i Stockholm. Begge deltog som nævnt på konferencen AI and the Humanities den 6. og 7. september på Aarhus Universitet, arrangeret af Human Futures-netværket og det interdisciplinære forskningscenter SHAPE, også ved Aarhus Universitet. Og med det nåede vi afslutningen af endnu en sær episode af Computational Thinking, at tænke med maskiner. Men husk, at vi også i næste episode taler med flere forskere, som deltog på konferencen om AI og humaniora. Computational Thinking udgives af IT Vest og er produceret af Podlab. Jeg hedder Anders Høgh Nissen. Tak for denne gang. 